from Kurtco Media. In every decade, there's a group of cars that made their impression, and every era has their own icons of cars that really have become collectible. That was the voice of Jacob Grison, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. Welcome to another episode. And my guest today is Jacob Grison, VP Motoring with Bonhams. Bonham's 10th anniversary sale is happening in Scottsdale, Arizona on January 21st, 2021. And we're here to talk about some of the great cars that are going to be going across the ramp. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Robert. Not only is this the 10th anniversary of Bonham's annual Scottsdale auctions, but it's obviously going to be tackled in a little different way since so much has happened over the course of the past last year, Jacob. But I guess first to set the stage for our audience, since they are car enthusiasts, I'm certain that they know that Bonhams plays a prominent role on the world auction stage. You've got auctions everywhere from Goodwood to Geneva, from Modena to Monterey. Certainly that's the highlight of August. You do private sales. I remember a great sale at the inaugural Richard Mille Concours in Chantilly, France, and you had some incredible cars there. One of my favorites, a Maserati Boomerang went across the stage. I've got a lot of highlights and bookmarks in my personal catalog collection that remain near and dear. I believe that's where we dressed up in full-on tuxedos, right? Indeed. The auctioneer and everybody was in a tuxedo. It was at the gala dinner that night. That was quite a time. Of course, now I imagine a lot of the people attending this auction are going to be in their pajamas or maybe their bedroom slippers because they can be doing it from the comfort of their own home. I know over the course of the last year, I participated in some Bonhams auctions art auctions, and of course, those have all been online. But what makes them interesting, and I guess what's going to happen at your auction, please fill in some of the blanks, is that you'll actually have a live auctioneer at the Kierland Resort and Spa with the cars on view, but it's actually going to be an online venue. Is that how it works? That is very much how it works, yes. We have viewing on site at the Western Kierland in Scottsdale with all the right social distancing measures in place, of course. We feel it's important to offer potential buyers and bidders a chance to really see the cars and go for a test drive, things like that. An old car can hide a lot of grim things. It's really important <laughs> that the condition and everything is up to par with what the buyer or he or she expects. So we like to have viewing and we're doing that, but definitely with the cars will be further apart and everything we have to do to keep it safe, we're doing, of course. Bidding will be online, also via telephone and absentee bidding is also possible. You will basically lock on the day of the auction, just like if you were walking into our tent in Monterey or in Monaco or Goodwood, as you talked about, we do auctions all over the world. And basically, like if you were walking into the tent, you will open your computer and you'll lock in and you'll see the auctioneer and we'll sell every car lot by lot. With video for every lot, we mailed out a catalog to our clients who can follow along in that way. Well, I guess a lot of practice auction goers understand that really sometimes the stealthiest and most successful way to place bids is over the telephone. Even if you happen to be in the room, it's nice to know that some of the standard mechanisms of participation will remain. And really the only difference is you can be drinking your own martini in your lounge chair while you're actually buying that car. Let's talk about the upcoming auction and some of the cars that are in there. And just because 
by the way, these cars are going to go across the ramp, the virtual ramp on January 21st, doesn't mean that what we say about them isn't relevant into the future, because we're going to talk about some, what I'd like to say, eternally shining stars in the collector car orbit. I'm looking through your catalog here. You got some great stuff, Jacob. And I think if I had to put a title on this catalog, it would be Festival of the 50s, because some of the most interesting cars are precisely from that decade. You got some real oddballs in here, too. Maybe we should talk about a few of those before we get to the superstars of your auction. Certainly. You got everything from an Austin Healey to a bunch of Jaguars, which are, of course, perennial favorites. But you've also got an Elva. You've got a 54 Curtis. Talk about a few of these little oddities, if you can. Starting where you left off, the Curtis is really a lovely car. I was speaking with a client about it earlier today, actually, who was interested and asked me to go for a drive in it. Curtis was a Southern California manufacturer of specials, as you called them. And they made a great chassis and then you fit different types of coachwork on it. It has an American V8 engine. They are eligible for many great events, such as the Copper State 1000 or the Colorado Grand. Actually, some of them even ran the Mille Miglia back in the day. For me personally, the 50s is actually one of the greatest eras of cars. It's right before race cars became full-on race cars and a road car was something else. These cars were basically race cars that you could race and you could also drive them on the road. It's sort of that balance before the early 60s when the cars really were too hairy to drive on the road. They were only made for the track or vice versa. Somebody can acquire a very special and exquisite little body on this car, but really acquire a real fire-breathing race car from the 50s. And your estimate probably in the mid-100s, is that right? That's right. Yeah, 130 to 160 is the estimate on the Curtis. It really ticks a lot of boxes, you know. It's eligible. It's a fun car to drive. A powerful V8 out front. It's great. Great looking, very sort of sparse. There's not a lot of creature comforts, but that's not the idea here. It's really to go fast. Any Shelby Cobra owner understands what creature comforts or lack thereof is all about. Exactly. The Curtis isn't lacking any more than that. You got a Porsche Speedster in there too. A beautiful little 58 red Speedster that looks like quite a car. With a car like a Porsche, I would say any sort of major manufacturer product like Porsche, Mercedes, Jaguar, you want everything to be right. You want it to be exactly as it was when it left the factory. Going back on the Curtis, those cars got different types of engines and things. On a car like a Speedster, you want everything to be original. The beautiful 58 Speedster we have has the original body number stamped in the doors and the front and the rear hood with a bonnet and engine lid. It tells you that the body panels are original. Also, the engine is matching numbers, so is the transmission. All that stuff you want to be right. We have a copy of the original build sheet that confirms all of that. So the Cardex comes in clean, and it looks like it's got some pretty special stuff on it, too. I see some chrome rudges on there that are just gorgeous. Color is ruby red from new with the tan leather red interior. Everything on that car is as it was when it left Sufenhausen in 1958. And also, which is quite important, it's a T2, which is sort of the fully evolved 58 is the last year of the Speedster, the original 356 Speedster. They started, they came out in 54, 54, yeah, with a 1500 engine, and then they got upgraded to 1600 engines. And they upgraded the steering box, they upgraded the transmission and other sort of cosmetic details on the T2, and it makes it quite a bit more desirable than a T1. Again, they're just such iconic cars that are usable for many events. 
this car is restored to the nth degree, several hundred thousand dollars has been spent on the restoration. And it was actually a very good car to start with. Like we talked about, it has the original bodywork and all of that. But it's done really to the absolute Porsche Concorde judging standards. And they remain icons. I think a lot of times what makes a car valuable is about three to four elements, aesthetics, engineering, history, and some romance. Aesthetics, a Speedster is a beautiful car in many people's opinion. Engineering, I mean, it's a Porsche, it's well-built. They aren't as, I would say, they have a reputation of being maybe a little bit of a Volkswagen, but the 911 was a little more sophisticated, but it's still a well-engineered car. And history, I mean, they won races back in those days. A lot of sports car drivers and racing drivers started out in a car like a Porsche. And again, the Romance, so they were the least expensive cars in the 356 model lineup when new. These cars were, they were less than a coupe, less than a cabriolet. They were Max Hoffman's idea to get them to America so they could get some customers into Porsches who might not be able to afford Ford, the more costly ones. You're absolutely right. Oddly enough, for being the least expensive car in the Porsche lineup back in 1958, it's certainly not the least expensive now. In fact, probably the most dear and desirable, apart from some of the special one-offs and Carreras. Yeah, so this is a half-million-dollar-plus car. I guess that's what it takes to get into the speedster world if you want the best of the best. If you want the best of the best, that's about what it takes. You can get a nice driver, maybe with a non-matching engine, for about half. But the way I see the market these days, people really buy the very best cars and they pay up for those. The cars that have the pedigree and where everything was done right, that's what people pay a premium for. Something that is good but isn't great is a very different price point. If you're going to go, go big. And this one is definitely one of the prettiest speedsters I've seen in a long time. And by the way, there's nothing better than a ruby red speedster. (laughs) You can take all the other colors, but ruby red for a speedster, it's hard to beat. I agree. You've got some other great 50s iron here. One of them is a big boy. It's certainly not the top of every collector's list, but it was a very important car in so many ways. That's your 56 Continental Mark II, the beautiful Gordon Buick design. Kind of an experiment of Fords, wasn't it? They were really trying to move up market, and they made about 2,500 of these in 1956. I think they lost money on every one of them. (laughs) That's what they say. I'm not sure it's apocryphal. It's probably quite true, but they wanted to make a statement with a halo car. The design is absolutely beautiful. It's not far from this to a to a contemporary Rolls Royce of that era, they really pulled out all plugs to build a really, really special car. Maybe it's just my imagination, but it seems like 1956 is sort of a banner year for this auction of years because you've got another very special car made that very same year, which probably merits some deep discussion. And that's your Mercedes-Benz 300 SC Roadster. Tell us all about that car. This is really a special, special car. Mercedes, in the mid-50s, they were back in business after World War II. And I'm always amazed how quickly they actually got back on their feet. In 1955, famously, of course, Sterling Moss won the Mille Miglia in about 10 hours in an SLR. It was also a horrible accident at Le Mans. Many things happened these years, but their engineering and their quality of manufacturing was just very hard to beat. The 300SC Roadster, they made a Roadster. They made a coupe and a cabriolet. And the Roadster, by many, are considered the most desirable. The convertible top folds down behind the seats. It's a pure 
two-seater, not a four-seater like the Cabriolet. Furthermore, this is the SC, which the C identifies it as a fuel-injected car. So it's basically a 300 SL chassis. It's not the same chassis, of course. 300 SL chassis was, was quite different, but engine and the layout, the rear axle and things like that is from a 300 SL. And then with a very elegant, very timeless body on it. Jacob, you talk about this car as being an icon, and certainly it is. It was also a bit of an outlier for Mercedes because on the one hand, it has the incredible, robust, and high-performance inline-six engine that was found in the 300 SL, but in many ways, it was a pre-war car in terms of its manufacture, its chassis, its look, and certainly the methodology of its manufacture, almost like a coach-built car, really, which presents some real dichotomies, both in terms of its driving character and in terms of what it takes to restore one. The build quality, what it took to put these cars together from new and nowadays to restore them, it takes a lot more effort than most cars, especially that how the front fenders and the doors they line up. There are so many different dimensions there that are extremely difficult to get right. Inside, you have a beautiful wooden dashboard and wooden door caps. And it is just luxury at a different level than the vast majority of manufacturers in the 50s. They only made 53 SC Roadsters. And this very example is matching numbers, has its original coachwork, delivered new to New York. And I would suggest people buying one that's restored like this car, because like we talked about, these cars is extremely expensive, not just because they're so complex in their build, but also the parts for them. They made 200 SCs in total. So 200 of the 300 series in fuel injected version, 53 were the Roadsters, they made about 100 coupe and the balance were the cabriolets that had a rear seat and the top sort of sat on top of the body. But with that few cars made, parts are scarce and expensive. You've got an estimate of 775000 to 875000 It almost sounds like a bargain, one of those cases where you pay for the restoration and get the car for free or vice versa, because the restoration can certainly, certainly eclipse half a million dollars on one of these cars. The other interesting thing is these cars were more money when new, they cost more than a 300 SL going. When 56, you could also get a 300 SL going. That was less money. It's very much like the Porsche Speedster where there were a lot less back then and now they sort of eclipse their counterparts. That's right. You talk about restoring these things and you mentioned the front fender to the door and that pontoon that continues back into the door. Boy, that is a challenge for even the best body man. Probably the only greater challenge would be the going door, which has to fit in umpteen million different dimensions and fit smoothly and accurately. So these Mercedes were not for the faint of heart when it comes to pulling them apart and putting them back together again. They were also owned by some of the most discerning clientele around the world. Cary Grant and Gary Cooper and the Aga Khan all had one of these 300 SCs. Put us behind the wheel and just take us out for a quick drive in this car. You immediately feel the luxury and sort of the built quality that is synonymous with Mercedes-Benz. The 300 SC was really the top-of-the-line car in the mid-50s for Mercedes-Benz. It's much like an S-Class today. So are they sporty? They're not sporty. They're luxurious. They're plenty fast and very comfortable, but they were not made to win races and things like that. A good friend of mine is interested in buying one to take on the Colorado Grand, which is a thousand mile rally. And I think he would have a very comfortable ride in a car like this. So they're usable for touring, very much like a pre-war car. We talked about how Mercedes carried over so some of the styling cues from the 30s. Same with their drivability. I mean, they're high speed, straight line, very comfortable. 
individual cars. But if you want to go out and hug the corners on a mountain road, you should probably look for a 300 SL. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Jacob Grison. I see another car in the catalog that in some ways might be the most intriguing, and it's certainly one that has those two words after its description that says refer department, which means that this is a very special car indeed. It's your 39 540K special Cabriolet A. This is really as far as Mercedes-Benz came before World War II. The 540K was very much like a Model J Duesenberg or some of the best Rolls Royce's eight-cylinder supercharged engine, 180 horsepower. This is 90 years ago. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Five-speed manual transmission. These were all quite bespoke cars. Mercedes-Benz had their in-house coach builder, Sindelfingen. They had sort of a catalog of probably five or six different body styles, but then they had some that got special treatment. This car, for example, is one of two that got a raked windscreen and other details inside and out to the first owner's special wishes. Very special build. It was delivered new to Paris and already ventured off to the U.S. in the 50s as sort of car collecting started becoming a thing. The first U.S. owner was James Melton, or Jim Melton, who was a pioneering car collector, much along the lines of Bill Hera. He really had some great cars and had an eye for, at that point, 20, 30-year-old car being something other than just a used car. Mm -hmm. Later, Otis Chandler owned it in 1973. Without giving up the secrets, this is a multi-million dollar car. Is that right? That is right. Yes. Where should a car like this actually end up? Should it go into a collection and sit on a podium somewhere or should it be driven? Can it go on a rally? What would you do with a car like this? One of the previous owners who we talked about earlier, Jim Melton, he actually drove it quite a bit. He took it to many car shows and concours around the U.S. But since the 70s, it has been very much of a collection type car that is started up and used sparingly. I do think a car of this importance should be in a collection, but we're seeing where people can come by and see it. I think that's important. And many collectors are quite open to showing their cars and take them out to concours events or invite people in. I hope people will get to see it in future years as well. It sounds like we're hanging around Germany here, but got to talk about a BMW, a BMW that most folks wouldn't associate with the mark. People think about BMWs now, they call them the ultimate driving machine and all the contemporary look and feel. And of course, BMW didn't really get big in America until they came over here with the 1600 and 2002. But before that time, they made some very rare, very special, very high performance cars. The 59 BMW 507 Roadster, one of my personal favorites. This was very much BMW's answer to the 300 SL Roadster in the 50s. And I just really loved the styling of this car. They made 253 of them. And the way they designed it, 
just really, really works. I think it just has sort of a light and sporty look. I believe the designer was Albrecht Graf Goetz, who made other famous cars. And in fact, I guess this was another one of Max Hoffman's brilliant ideas, the American importer who got Porsche's little speedster over here and was involved with Mercedes-Benz, and he got BMW to introduce this thing around mid-50s. Is that right? You know, Max Hoffman being sort of a leading European car importer to the States, he saw that many GIs and American military personnel who had come to Europe to help end World War II, they had taken note of all the little British sports cars and German sports cars running around the smaller roads of Europe. That's probably where it all stems from. There was probably a more sporty feel for cars over there where American cars were bigger and it was just a different idea. What Max Hoffman did with the 300 SL, of course, and the 507 was have these cars made and they obviously got very popular. They were like nothing else on the road. Probably not a commercial success, much like the Continental Mark II. We talked about BMW lost money on every one of these, but they made their mark on their era, the 50s. I think one would argue a 507 is probably the most collectible, so much so that when the Z8 came out, I believe in the early 2000s, you know, that was really a retro design to the 507. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to remark that retro designs typically don't fare too well. They're usually much too contrived, much too derivative, and much too obvious. But the Z8 was a car that actually paid a very respectful homage to the original 507 and sort of carried the theme along in a very elegant and successful way. Usually that doesn't happen. So I think that's testament to not only the talent of BMW designers in the 2000s, but the fact the 507 was such an enduring design that could be translated so beautifully. I mean, you look at the car today and it looks thoroughly modern. The proportions are right. The sportiness is right. Every line on that car is right. And not just outside. Even the interior is exquisite. They really got it right in the design. And also, like we talked about earlier, for me, there's three elements that make a car collectible and valuable and desirable. And that's engineering, history, and the aesthetics. We talked about the aesthetics. It's a very, very beautiful car in many people's opinion. Engineering-wise, they had an all-aluminum V8 engine. It's very ahead of its time to have an all-aluminum engine in these years. And it wasn't the fastest, but it certainly made the car go quite well. They also had a ZF transmission. You know, they were, of course, all four-speed manual, but ZF was one of the best transmissions. It still is to this day, actually. And the brakes and the suspension was also really sporty and made the car handle well. It's an absolutely exquisite car. I don't think anyone would have imagined 15 years ago, for instance, that these cars would be worth what they're worth today. What's the estimate on this one? 1.9 to 2.3 million. Okay, so that's the price of admission for a nice 507. And I'm gathering this is a particularly nice one. It definitely is. These cars were owned by some of the most famous people of the day. Elvis Presley had one, of course. The Prince of Monaco had one. I mean, these were really what to be seen in in the 50s. And the price point, well... They made 1,800, 300 SL Roadsters, and they're about half price, a little bit more than half price of a 507. So, you know, if you add it up, they have been selling in that price range for some time. We at Bonhams actually sold the most valuable 507 ever sold at auction, and i quite sure privately. We sold the 507 of the late BMW factory motorcycle driver, John Surtees, also a car racer later on, I believe it was, but he was gifted the car from BMW. Well, he might have had to pay 
something for it, but he had won the championship and got a brand new 507 and it stayed in his family until we sold it. And we got a world record price of nearly, it was, the pound was a little bit different. We sold it at our Goodwood auction, but it was around $5 million for very original one family owned 507. Certainly you've got some star cars in this auction. You've got some cars that mere mortals might go after as well. You've got, without question, what is the weirdest car of all. would have to be, I think, the little 1954 Metal Mechanica Italiana Veltrompia Mivalino. That's quite a mouthful. What a great little micro car, or mini car, I guess you'd call it. What is there to know about that? Messerschmitt was a little um, micro car that got Europe back on two or four wheels after World War II. A lot of these micro cars, they were very popular. They didn't cost a lot. They were easy and inexpensive to run. Messerschmitt, who also made fighter planes in World War II, they turned their production into these little cars. And Mival, Tipo M-O, Mival was actually a um, based out of Brescia, Italy. It was a company that had made bicycles and other things, and they were licensed by Messerschmitt to produce an Italian version of the Messerschmitt. So that's basically what this is. They had their own engines and they had different body design and things like that. This very example is was sold near, well, it wasn't actually sold, but it was at a Mival motorcycle dealer in Italy and stayed with that family until about, I want to say, early 2000s or so. So it basically stayed with it. Probably not on the same showroom floor, but it was never sold from the original dealer for about 50 years. And then it joined the quite famous microcar collection. All the cars are sold now, but of Bruce Weiner out in, I believe he was in Atlanta. This example is extremely original. It has never been taken apart, painted, anything like that. They only made about 100 of these Italian licensed Messerschmitts. It's a beautiful little thing. And for somebody who hasn't got room in their garage for a Continental Mark II, this might be a more fitting resident for one of the shorter stalls. <laughs> We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. I wonder if we can talk about generally the changing tastes, if you will, the future trends that you see, especially as regards the new landscape for auctions, with virtual auctions being more the norm and very likely to continue into the future, even after we're through this pandemic. What are you seeing collectors raising their paddles for now? I see collectors raising their paddles for truly collectible cars, which means that the car is very much like it was when it left the factory when it was new. So cars with original engines and components, cars that are truly original, which would be a preservation car or a car that's never been painted or had the interior replaced, that is actually more desirable these days than a restored car. And that was very different back in the 80s and 90s. If you think about it, it's much like many other forms of collecting. If you have a vintage watch or an old piece of furniture, if it's been fully restored, it's actually less desirable than if it's original and hasn't been tampered with. They're only original once. That's correct. 
in every decade, there's a group of cars that made their impression, and every era sort of has their own icons of cars that really have become collectible. We still sell cars that are a hundred and some years old for big money, but it's really only the ones that really made an impression on that era. There's certainly somewhat of a generational shift with pre-war cars, but then again, the most important pre-war cars like an eight-cylinder Alpha or a Great Duesenberg, something like that, are as collectible as they've ever been. But the sort of second tier or third tier of a four-door sedan, of a low-horsepower Packard or something like that, is not as desirable as it was 20, 30 years ago. So generally, people buy what they remember from their childhood. And if you're born in the 20s or 30s or 40s, you're getting up there. So the really important cars that really made their mark on any generation still remain very collectible. I often say, if you walk into the Louvre, an important art museum, many of the pieces you see were made centuries ago, and they're still very desirable and popular. So certainly the best of the best will always remain relevant. What do you see coming about in the way of more recent cars? Would you want to speculate on that in terms of cars from the 80s and 90s, maybe even future classics? I think it is really about the cars that made their mark on the specific era they were built in. What do you remember from the 90s? We have a really great Lancia Delta Integrale, highly original. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yeah, those cars have become extremely desirable in the last five to seven years. And why is that? Well, they won the Rally World Championship six years in a row, and they really made a mark on that era. So many of the Group B cars are becoming very collectible, and rightfully so. They really speaks 1980s better than any other car, really. Up through the 2000s, there are definitely some limited production cars that become instant collectibles to a degree, maybe a Porsche Carrera GT, you know, 2004, 5, 6, a Ford GT from the same era. Now, again, the more modern ones, they've really never sold for less than their list price. And I think they'll have a nice curve upwards in future years. Absolutely. Especially when they become around 30, 40 years old. A lot of times that's when you see a car really sort of have an uptick in price. I think a lot of us have been surprised by the performance in the market of some of these more recent offerings, like the Porsche and the Ford and whatnot. I guess there are opportunities that abound for people even buying new cars today. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next decade. Ferrari, Porsche, they're putting out a lot of limited edition models. And a lot of times they sort of draw a line between that and their early cars are from the 60s and 70s and really play up their heritage. I think there's probably a little too many new modern limited edition models coming out for the market at a hefty price tag. And I think we can't forget that a car really truly has to be collectible. And what makes it collectible as much as What's under the skin, assets, design, and things like that. You see a car like a McLaren F1 being one of the most collectible cars of all time. People compare it with a GTO of the 60s or maybe a 2.9 Alpha of the 30s. And why is that? Well, everything on that car was made exactly or specifically just for that car. But that happened a lot in the 50s and 60s, but you rarely saw that in the 
80s and 90s, as car manufacturers were, well, they grew bigger and merged, you don't have the same sort of exclusivity in their manufacturing as you did back in the day or on the McLaren F1. That's right. It's like a very limited edition watch. I'm not talking Rolex or something like that or Patek Philippe even, but a George Daniel watch, he made, I believe he made about 50 watches in his lifetime, and that's basically on Obtainium. I mean, that's sort of the same level as a McLaren F1. Jacob, this is a fun conversation. I can't let it go without asking a few questions about you, though. How did you get into cars? My dad's a car guy, so I grew up in it. He has a Peugeot dealership in Denmark, where I'm from. I grew up really starting to like and appreciate cars. And when I was 14, we bought an MGA together, a little British sports car, also from the 50s. And we bought it in the States in boxes, basically. And I restored that, and that really sparked my interest in classic or collectible cars. I then went to America. I was going to be here for six months, and that's 18 years ago. And I believe I met the right people. I met a great gentleman in San Diego who's still a very good friend of mine, Chuck Spielman, and his friend, Neil Wishard, who really mentored me. And I worked in their collections for years, and then I started in the auction business. I'm always tempted to ask what's in your garage. Have you got anything special that you particularly love? I still have the MGA, which I've owned now for more than 25 years. I've owned some great 911s over the years. I had a Lotus Esprit. I sold that after driving that for about five years. Right now, the MG is the only car I have. Parking spots in Los Angeles are quite expensive. And in the future, I hope there will be more. Well, I'm glad that little MGA is still in the collection. You know, that's a car that doesn't get enough credit for being as absolutely beautiful as it is. It's got, in many ways, the kind of proportions and the smooth lines and just the real gracious elegance of even that BMW 507. They look great. They also handle really well, actually. They have this brakes from 59 onwards, minus a 59, and they really made a great car. I like to throw it out one last question to all our guests. Any three cars you could put in your garage? Let's say you had a bigger garage and you could have the keys to any three cars. What do you think they'd be? A 250 Testarossa. I think that would tick all the boxes for me. That definitely hits the spot. That's great. Well, Jacob Grayson Bonhams, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, I want to wish you all the best of success at your upcoming 10th anniversary Scottsdale, Arizona auction on January 21st, 2021. I'm going to be tuning in and watching silently from afar, maybe a bag of popcorn or a cocktail, depending on the time. Look forward to seeing some of these exciting cars cross the virtual block. Yes, if you tune into bonhams.com forward slash Scottsdale, you can see all the action right there on your screen. Thanks to Jacob Grison, Bonham's VP of U.S. Motoring, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.